we need to make much better use of space. And I just think in terms of research on the quality of the environment of a school, if we've been paying more attention to the research about air quality, ventilation, circulation, adaptability of space, those schools that I know have done that have coped very well with COVID. Uh, they've not thought about jamming people down the corridor and splitting off into lots of boxes. So Bill, welcome to our last edition of uh, the Learning Lab podcast for 2020. Thank you, the last one. I know, it, this year has flown by. Crazy it's, one. It's just gone so fast. Mm. So Unprecedented. Oh, if I hear that word again. The new normal. Oh, oh. Um, so schools in the Southern Hemisphere are all heading towards exams or in them at the moment. Mm. So Or strange forms of exams oh, which aren't yeah. called exams. No. Or, um, no, at Vic University they're calling them tests, but they're really hard exams. Oh, do you think tests, psychologically it sounds easier than yeah. an exam? I yeah. don't know. And it's online. And oh, okay. Yeah. Does it mean, how can you... Timed. Yeah. yeah. And open book and all that sort of stuff. Mm. So. I was reading today that um, there's been a bit of an uproar around the HSC maths exam in Australia. The higher school certificate. Yes, so apparently the maths exam this year was extremely difficult um, so some of the teachers and parents have got very stressed emotional kids who just had no idea that it was going to be like it was so but they can't you prepare. just say that was the covid year and you know i do you know what i think we should all need to do that to <laughs> just, a certain degree just, don't we it's yeah. all good yeah complete uh, amnesty yeah mm. so um i've really enjoyed this series though yeah. i think we've um we've really picked the brains of some very incredible people who have got some amazing insights yeah. and predictions for what the future holds for education and what it could be, the potential that we have there so I don't think it's all doom and gloom it's I think. It's definitely not all doom and no, gloom I think. And, uh, we've been forced into different paradigms, different yeah. ways of thinking yeah. and and that's just widened the, the scope rather than yeah. narrowed it. I totally agree so wrapping up this series, we've got part two of our interview with um, Terry White. So um, we talked a bit about kind of looking through COVID, what he thinks the future might hold. You were talking before about COVID maybe making people look back, but I've heard a couple of webinars and, and principals talking about some of the positive aspects of kids that weren't engaged in class, couldn't focus, hated being stuck to yeah. a timetable. Yeah. And they've really thrived at home. And so they're yeah. trying to look at this kind of blended learning environment and, and looking at this as the students as individuals. Do you think that there are some opportunities that are happening kind of this, if we look beyond um, COVID, that people might embrace differently? Yes, I, d I do. I mean, I think that the, you know, I, I think there's always been a place for blended learning. Mm. And I think therefore... I think it also is about the maturation level and the ability of the young person and the type of program that you're offering in that way. But yeah, I think that that's really good. I think, you know, my, my challenge with all of that is if we just turn that into another way of delivering content online mm. and actually we, we yeah, I hook up with you and I say, right, we're going to do X today and we're going to do it for an hour and then that's it. And, you know, I, I don't spend time coming back to you and saying, have you got it? Do you understand it? You know, where do we go next? Mm. Then actually we're going to go nowhere with that. Because mm. I think, again, the bright ones will just do that very easily. The others will struggle. And I think some kids actually with special needs may find it very difficult to go online and actually have the confidence to stay focused if you're on the spectrum in that way. Um, 
Uh, some people have said, you know, it will be a, a watershed. I, I don't think that's correct. I think we should learn from it to see how people have adapted and used it in very positive ways. But I think we should reflect on those young people that have had difficulty with it. Mm. And, and I would say that, you know, some parents will have major gains. You know, homeschool relationships are going to be very different, aren't they? Because some parents that are in groups that can support it will find that, that actually it, it, that, that could be very strengthening. There'll be many parents who actually have no way of supporting their kids and their emotional learning while they're being online. And there will be a difficulty. And then I guess there's access kit. That's what I was going to say. Not everybody has access to digital. Uh, so I guess, so for me, uh, I, I think there's a route there. I, I think that what we've got to be careful about is to, to invest in the thinking that says, how do we make it work in a way that we get the value out of that, but we recognise some people won't cope with it. Mm. But when we then spend time in school, and this is what I would say to you, we need to rethink what we do in school. Because there's lots of things we can do online, but there are, there are things we can't do online that we now would need to do in school. Yeah. So I would put much more emphasis in the design of the school on the social, the emotional, the team building. You know, when I come into school now, I actually want to do something that's going to interact. I mean, going, looking through COVID, obviously, yeah, I want to do team building. I want to work with people. I want to have discussions. I want to follow things up. And if you think about that and then you take the range of online learning or blended learning and, and the point you've just made, what it says to me is that, 15 or 20 people all at different stages mm. they're not going to be group x has come in and they're going to have their last lesson they're going to be i think in, in in a good way well down the road or struggling or finding it difficult on that so suddenly you're coming in and the need to make learning more personal and therefore the space to make learning more personal i think has to be the major thrust for redesign of schools Mm. I was going to say, because if we're going to start thinking about what the learning that's taking place at school, then the learning spaces are going to have to change because they're not going to support that kind of learning. No, no. Well, that's right. And I, and I think, you know, and therefore the way in which you create that, and I think it would lead to what you guys do. Well, you guys do it well in terms of design. I think sometimes transition into some of your spaces are challenging for staff. Yeah. Mm. But I think teams working together, you know, being able to spot the regrouping across two or three groups, which you wouldn't be able to easily do uh, you know, with your one group, because it may be a whole range. It reinforces to me what I've always felt, which is that you know, we, we need to create learning and we need to move people on from where they are to where they're gonna go next. So we actually were going from where they are to where they're gonna move to, not where we think they are mm. or where we think they should be. And that has a whole dynamic on the way we create the space within the school. So I think we should really now be thinking about, let's say it's successful, blended learning will be successful. And I think it will be for certainly older children who will obviously start to, if they get the message, you know, they do it now, don't they? They go online, they get their stuff, they get excited, they do stuff, they come back in and say, oh, I know that, I've done that, you know, so what am I doing next? And then you've got a teacher who might say, well, we're only at this part of the syllabus, so hang on a minute, you know, and all the rest of it. I'm, not, I'm oversimplifying, but you know what I mean? And so I think that suddenly we have this opportunity to say, let's go to the best of that, which is your point. Let's recognize some youngsters will need other type of support around their blended learning approach. And some may actually not cope with that and may need to come in in different hubs and different inclusive centers to actually catch up or to be engaged or whatever. 
but many of those spaces will need to look in my view very differently and i think that means that in terms of design you know we need to make much better use of space and and just as a thought from me i think if um if we you were asking about trends you know earlier are we doing what we're saying we should be doing or we you know are we actually sort of stand treading water a bit and i just think in terms of research on the quality of the environment of a school if we've been paying more attention to the research about air quality, ventilation, circulation, adaptability of space, those schools that I know have done that have coped very well with COVID. Mm. You know, because they've actually thought about ventilation and air and movements and circulation and space. Uh, they've not thought about jamming people down the corridor and splitting off into lots of boxes. You know, and I know that's not true in the majority of schools in New Zealand, but I think it's still an issue that says, you know, um, circulation is important. So I think, so I think that's a, an outcome, I think. And I think the other thing is that, um, I know you're doing a lot of building, but all around the world, most people are remodeling. And so through COVID, they'll be thinking, what have we learned and how can we remodel in such a way that we actually get the best out of this, but also don't hit up on the problem in the future. So with, with some of our new um, relocatable classrooms that are coming in, they all have um, carbon dioxide meters as standard, but they're not teaching the teachers what it means, what the numbers mean. So uh, um, when they do, and when that's passed on to the children, then we're seeing great things because they're, they're the ones telling the, the supply teacher, oh, when this number hits this system, we open windows. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> You know, and I and I think and I think that's the other bit, isn't it? That you know, the, the this is the bit about what we would like to encourage. You know, uh, with one of the projects that uh, I'm doing with Stephen is you know his Learnometer project. You yeah. know, and looking at which just I won an award I saw yesterday. Did it? Yeah, it did. Just, oh, oh, great, wonderful, really good. Because I think you know that that actually there's there's gathering the data in schools, and you know I can see that could be a double-edged sword for local districts and authorities for suddenly to say, hey guys, do you know, for half the year in the summer, this is too hot. Mm. And that puts a bit of a, you know, party pooper on the whole idea about, well, what's going on here? You know, and the parents saying, you know, my school's too hot and I've got the information and that might be difficult. But, but then if you just think about giving that learnometer to a student and to get them to move it around their building mm. and to actually look at the data it's collecting, and use that as understanding the importance of those things. Um, that's a powerful thing, mm. seems to me. And um, so I think that you know that, that there is there is a really important point here about I think engaging young people. And that, of course, for me, is back to this business of the design because I do think that we need to um, up the game on on what we're doing in the design. And I think certain parts of the world do it really well. Uh, you know, I mean, I mean, I think if you go to some countries, you know they were already considered internal and external space. And I know you do that naturally because there is an issue that the climate will be of help in some parts of your country. Yes. But, you know, in Scandinavia, you know, they go to the outside, but in, in parts of Norway, their designers would deliberately take their roof strut out rather than just taking the classroom out. Mm. So in the design of the building, because it's integrated architects coming together with educationalists and designers and interior designers, they're not just thinking about, well, here's the nice new spaces and we do them, whatever. Here's the internal, and that's important because you get a fresh air play and you get a different environment. It's actually, well, okay, how can we be more economic in the design process to take the roof out as part of the structure? Or how can we, in cold countries, make the use of the wall 
deep in order to have seating in it and also act to thermal insulation. So there's a whole pile of stuff in this that I think, going back to our earlier point about bringing those people together, um, actually you know, really helps. And I think is what I would be wanting to think about now is um, talking about the learning campus and the learning community. Because I think we have to think about all of the spaces and all of the organization in that learning campus as the way we focus on uh, how we design that, 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 that school and that building. I think there is still a, there's an afterthought on landscape and there's an afterthought on furniture. We see this. <laughs> it seems to me that's just ridiculous. Right? Yeah, because it, 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 it and a, a, one of the great strengths that came out of um, the BSF work the UK has done, and I think there's a lot to learn from that, is one of the things that we did with, with the furniture and interior design generally, I mean, both fixed and loose, is that the first thing was, my role was to lead a design team and it had all the other disciplines on it. That would be FF&E, it would be landscape, you know, it would be acoustics, be it, all those things together. Yeah. And that's what we would do and work with the school to, you know, to get the process. And that would be, you know, would be our approach. And I think that was a really, um, you know, that was very powerful. But one of the things that came out of the Birmingham, of the Birmingham BSF scheme that I did um, was that we managed to get the FF&E budget drawn down early. So we, we designed it, you know, the budget's there, you know, it's within the project. So why do you have to wait like months and months and months to suddenly rush up and you now want to pick the furniture? Yeah. So we, we got them to release the funding for the furniture early. But the other thing we did, and I think this is really important, and I hope it's something I hope I think ought to be done in, in, in many countries. Um, the money was saved. So the school would be encouraged to spend 60% of that drawdown FF&E on the assumption that you need to live in it a bit before you finally crystallize what it is you want. Yeah. Rather than saying something like, you know, which I had to fight against and have done this in other countries. Well, here's your money for the FF&E. It's got to be spent by this, you know. Um, by the way, we're doing it about five weeks later. So it's all designed up. And therefore, you ask the head and the head says, well, you know, I'm not really sure and doesn't understand whether there's value in a more expensive piece of kit because it needs to move around more as opposed to a fixed piece of kit that, you know, isn't going to move around. Getting that in early, drawing it down, and therefore planning the furniture as a prototyping and sand pitting in the process, I think would make such a difference. Definitely. We, and it we, would have we, a big we, impact on your design process, I think. Yeah. One of the approaches that our team do is say, let's just have a completely empty room and then build it up over a period of months. Mm. Because the worst thing you want to see is a really expensive, beautiful whiteboard table being used as a, as a shelf for yeah. storage yeah. of stuff. Yeah. There is a lot of spaces in New Zealand that are filled with amazing, flexible furniture and these amazing spaces. But the teachers don't know how to navigate it. The kids don't know how to navigate it. And we interviewed Sandra Jenkins, who I know as a, as a cohort of yours, and, and she was saying, you know, this whole transition that they did to these amazing open spaces. They worked really long and hard with teachers. And she said, you know, that whole thing, that whole feedback and loop of with, with the students and the teachers. And she said, it doesn't, it's not like a year process. She said, it's a two, it's a five year process. You need to keep adjusting and tweaking. And, you know, I just think that we're kind of putting teachers and, and kids in these spaces that look amazing, but they're not necessarily either using them to their full advantage or understand how to use them or, or even with, all this tech for smart classrooms, nobody really understands how to read it and what they should be doing if it's... Well, oh, no, I mean, I think, you know, and I think that's my interest in, the, in, in 
working in New Zealand as I have done as you know a bit and I think my interest is because you actually have a much better starting point than most other countries in yeah. terms of valuing the young person at the center of all of this you know both culturally and socially and I know there's still the challenge of the academic the, the, the assessment but you start from a point of thinking about the young person and their total experience you know and I think that to me is, is refreshing providing you then invest the time in professional learning for the yeah. staff yeah. to actually help them transition to that space and actually, to actually then not put through the front end help and support for designing the space seems to me to be not a good use of capital investment mm. because, you know, it, it, it doesn't take long, as I was saying in the workshops we do, to thrash out pretty quickly what it is people need to go from where they are to where they need to go to, build in a bit of transition, you know, create uh, a flexibility of space around the new open spaces because what I find in New Zealand is that um, often it's down to a good architect that understands education, a good principal that understands it but's referenced it outside of New Zealand coming together and creating something around the learning and the teaching that actually is going to help them meet their needs. I mean, you, you tell me, I mean, I'd love this from your comment, really. But sometimes I think I could flip a coin and it could land the other way up and it could be, well, you're going to get this design, <laughs> sort of. Uh, it's nice open, it, you know, and all the rest of it. And you're going to go into it because it's, it's, it's an innovative learning environment or LAE or whatever. And, um, okay, guys, well, you know, you've all been working groups of 30, you know, October, well, you're in together, and so what happens? They all go back to their corners. Mm. And parents say, it's too noisy, I can't you know, hear from one group to the other. So I think for me, I think New Zealand is in the best position. I just hope New Zealand would not leave it to chance so much, and please, I shall probably not work in New Zealand again, but um, <laughs> not leave it to chance so much at the front end by just saying, you know, and what the government say is really important, and they say, if you're thinking, and this is the interesting bit, although it's suggesting the open connected spaces, but I think we're absolutely right for teamwork and collaboration. It also says in the documentation, if you're thinking of changing your approach, which is a little bit of conflict between big open space and changing your approach, yeah. you need to do even more work on defining your learning brief. But actually, if you're not helped to define your learning brief, yeah it's likely you'll run into the new building and hit issues of lack of transition and lack of organization and remodeling the space. And it could cause a kickback, as I've seen it in a number of New Zealand schools from parents who say, well, actually, we're not sure it's working. There's a big investment in, that, in those buildings. I would ask the question, in building in that way, I would say from my experience of architecture, there's probably savings against the standard model which you certainly haven't got as many walls. I think the government should recost that and say, we need to develop and make it work. You know, so for example, the best of the BSF program in the UK, it went wrong in the UK where we changed our government, but it also went wrong because people assume once you've got four or five of these things, you could just crave all the others like it, you know, it's a cookie cutter. This works, I haven't had four of these, you know, but, but I think one of the things that, that, that comes out of that is that so much more, you know, could be done. Uh, at that front end to, to make that work. And I think the investment in the time with the staff would be really, really good. 
uh, in the and as I say in that BSM program in England, unless you came up with a strategy for change, in other words, if, unless you were able to define your vision, how it translated into your learning and teaching, unless you could translate your pedagogy now and your next practice and your curriculum and your organisational model, then you didn't get the build. Mm. So you had to define your learning brief in much more, much more detailed way. Yeah. And it allowed the architect to very quickly use their, well, the design team, not just the architect, to come up with a very effective thing. You know, it was a question like, say, for FF&E, suddenly head teacher saying, well, actually, um, this chair is going to have to be moved about a lot. So actually, it needs to be lighter and perhaps it's going to cost a bit more. But actually, I'm going to move it 10 times in a day. And, and that's going to actually be a different type of beast than one that just sits there, you know. So that strategy for change is something that then identifies the learning and the teaching and the professional development that you need to do. And the biggest thing, and which is what I'm doing with Grey Lynn School at the moment, um, in Auckland, remotely now, of course, but, you know, and that's challenging, but we started off there before the shutdown. Um, you know, what they're doing is they are now rethinking about how they organise, because... One of the projects I'm doing, which you touched on about projects, is from planning learning spaces, um, we've developed a planning learning spaces pathfinder projects where we're going to schools, I think there are 10 schools in different countries, and we've created a framework that allows people to reflect and think through what it is they need to do in the space in, in a very simple and engaging way and to allow the school to go through that process. And then it drives out um, what the learning behaviours and the new behaviours in the school. And they translate, we then translate that into design features, activities and kit. And it would not be difficult to do that mm. at the front end of a process because it doesn't take very long. Mm. So, you know, so what we do is we take, we have a framework and we do the vision and the values and the culture. What does that look like in your school? Is it working like that? Or do you need to rethink it a bit because it might not be doing all you're saying it's doing? I don't mean in a harsh way, just in a, a reflective way mm. to get that right. Because my experience is the culture is often ignored. And if you ignore the culture and you're trying to get change, you know, I think you're onto a rocky starting point. Mm. We then ask teachers to look at their pedagogy, their curriculum organization and assessment their organisational model, because it's the organisational model, in my experience, that causes the problem. So if the architect doesn't know that there's going to be 75 kids working together, but makes an assumption that it's going to be 325s, that organisational model also means what you've both just said, that they have to have a curriculum delivery model that is shared as a team. So reworking their curriculum as a, as a group, diversifying, but coming together and reworking needs to be there. So then we look at leadership of learning. Then we look at community engagement and then we look at research and we say, what's your current practice? What do you need to improve? What would you like to improve? And then what's your next practice? Mm. So then we define the next practice, but the next practice is defined in behaviours for learning. And once we define the behaviours for learning and the activities, we then take those activities and say, well, what do we need to design in the space to make those activities work? There are many schools that can't afford high-level consultancy. They've got to do their stuff about developing their learning. But if they have a simple way to be empowered, to think very quickly through a reflective process, it, it, six sessions, and we end up with a little strategy that is the focus of what we're going to do. 
And that can be for a building, it can be for an extension, it can be for a reworking, or in Grey Lynn's case, it can be, hey guys, how do we now work in this space we've been given? Mm. What do we need to do? And a lot of the focus, as you both have said, is actually more on the organisation of the learning and the curriculum experience, because it's they need to work as a team, yeah. So And that's working, that's working quite well. But I just want to finish on this because we've talked a bit about the here and now. I want, I want, and you, you're a bit of a visionary. You've been in classrooms all around the world. Where, where's next for the next twenty years? Where do you see in twenty years' time? Where would you hope we would be? I think I would hope first of all that we've dealt with the elephant in the room, that we've actually started to recognise that we can't go on basing our education system on a set of Victorian values. You know, and, and I, you know, like you two, I mean, you know, I don't want to see another slide presentation of rows and rows and cells and bells because we'll be talking about that for years. <laughs> I think actually, you know, if I see another presentation that says, it, yeah, we all know that, but actually nothing has changed really because we just, that's where we were. But I think it's actually the elephant in the room is the way we value, as you were saying, you know, we need to value all those other things. And I, I hope that we'll get to the point of recognising and, and blended may help this a bit because I think the, the experience may go ahead of the teacher. Mm. So I think we've got to, first of all, recognize that um, we need to have a system that values and respects as we're starting to do with disability, I think, in society, mm. you know, but not so much necessarily always in schools, but recognizes that, that, that we need, if we want to balance curriculum, then we have to recognize and value and that's part of how we assess young people, readiness to move on. So I think I'm hoping that, you know, that the assessment system gets cracked in all of that, yeah. that I think must be important. I think we've also then got to look at the fact that learning is no longer going to be the, you know, the dominance of the school. Because I think that uh, even at a younger age, and it happens now, doesn't it, you know, with clubs and societies, depending on your, your economic ability to pay for these things. But I think that I think that the, the learning journey of a young person is going to need to look and must look very different because I think we will be, um, I'm not going to say, I don't like the word personalization because personalization to me means we're doing it to a kid. Mm. I would say the learning will be more personal. Mm. So if we make the learning more personal, then that learning journey will look very different. And therefore I think the types of facilities and spaces we build to make that as they go through that journey will change. And, and, and I, would I would feel that probably not just learning in the community, but learning in the real tail, re local retail park or learning in a whole range of other areas online or in presence will be this learning community that you might even better walk to it. You know, the whole nature of urban and community and living, I think will change. So I think the concept of the school um, actually changes completely. Mm. So I think that's what we'll see. I also think that as part of that, the technology um, will actually be, I think, a much greater force for good. But I think we, I do think we need to recognize the, I would hope that we'll be more egalitarian and give better access to those people mm -hmm. who are never quite gonna be there. So I'd like us to see, you know, a bit like um, the funding be really driven by need and therefore whatever the situation. But I think then the design of a school is likely to be you know completely different mm. i also think last point actually is that from from the homeschool relationship i think will change as part of that learning journey i think there'll be some parents who very quickly will actually move ahead and work with their young people and their kids 
in a way that's very different and will want something else from the school as they move on, you know? Mm. Uh, and I think that's where I think it will be. And I would hope that when we get to the point of um, organizing learning, that it will be much more on progression when ready to succeed and not back into this idea of year group. Uh, you know, it will, be, I think, become uh, a stage, not age process, because I can't see how it would work. And, and the last anecdote would be, you know, that when I first started as a head teacher in a school, it took me six months to get the staff to agree that they should share with the kids and the parents their program of teaching for the year. Now, admittedly, that was 20 years ago. But their, their question was, well, Terry, if I do that, they'll be ahead of me. And if they get ahead of me, that's really very difficult for me to, you know, to, to, I said, control the learning. I said, well, you yeah, know, no, it'll be very challenging, you know? <laughs> and, and... Final thoughts. What are your final words of wisdom? Okay, I, I think I'd just like to say I've always admired your approach in New Zealand, as I think you clearly think about the skills needed for young people for the future. And I think you don't get yourselves trapped into the rhetoric of the past in terms of learning and education. And I think that's, that's really positive. I say that because I think we're living really and learning already partway through the 21st century. And I think we have a professional responsibility to prepare young people for what will continue to be, you know, a rapidly changing world. We just cannot go forward with trying to establish an over-dominated past based on pure curriculum and content and actually use that as a means of accessing all the strengths of our young people. We need to find a better way through that. Mm. And I've always been positive that that's what I see when I, when I visit New Zealand. And I think you know, human beings go through their lives. They start off as young children, problem solving, they're creative. They look at the world around them. They're trying to move their way forward in their learning. And I think we should support that journey all the way through into these new spaces and places that we're going to design for the future. We need to ensure our young people, our teachers and our communities become the creators of that learning in those new spaces and not the consumers of something that we hand down to them. Mm. And I think if we can do that and we can positively go forward in the great strides you've made in the design of spaces and we support that process, then we'll get strong links between pedagogy and space and a curriculum experience, which I believe can be a world-class leader in terms of what we need to achieve. So that's how I would conclude. Well, that sounds like an exciting future for schools and for students. It's nice to finish on a positive note and to think about the, the what can be, what is possible, and that's exciting. I think so. And I think all of us, from whichever angle we come at this, we need to think in a very creative way and be very open and not closed and value the young person in a way that they can develop. And I think, you know, we, we need to be more inclusive. We need to ensure that all those needs are met. And as we move forward, that will be a great strap line for an education service of the future. Oh, amazing. Thank you so much for your time and your wisdom and your thoughts. Um, it's gonna be really amazing to share these with our audience. So thank you, Terry. Thanks Bye. a lot, Terry. So that concludes our two-part um, special with Terry White. We hope you enjoyed that. We, um, we learned a lot talking to Terry, didn't we? Oh, so many things. I mean, reading the book is one thing, but actually to talk to the man himself is mm. really awesome. Yeah, lots of, he's very passionate. He's great to listen to. Um, this is the last in this series, but we will be back. So if you want to get in contact or you want to be on the show or you have 
a topic or a theme you'd like us to cover, we'd love to hear from you. So until next time, take care. Ka kite anon kia koutou from New Zealand. Thank you.